Well, uh, good morning and uh, welcome to all those of you who are joining us in person or to those who are joining us uh, online. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here uh, at Jericho Ridge. And uh, thanks, a special thanks to the tech team. They bought us all new mics, so I'm hope I'm, we're not going to crackle anymore in, uh, in our time. So I appreciate the work that they do behind the scenes. So uh, we're here in this fall in a series in the book of Ephesians. And we're looking at, in the book of Ephesians, all of the different ways in which God brings uh, new life into parts of our world. God transforms our thinking and our acting so that how we relate to God and to other people uh, happen in radically new ways. And the book of Ephesians, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, by a man named Paul, uh, was written to a group of uh, Christians in a, a small group in the city of Ephesus in the first century. And Paul was a leader in the early Christian movement and wrote what would become much of our uh, New Testament. But in the time and space in which we live here in the 21st century, Paul is not a figure without controversy. Sometimes I'll have a conversation with people and they'll say things to me like, Brad, Jesus I love. I can get behind Jesus and Jesus' ethic and the things that are written about him, but I can't stand that Paul guy that comes after him. Like, have you read what he writes about slavery and about women and about homosexuals? Like, I just can't read those parts of the Bible. I'm gonna stick with the Jesus part of things. Have you ever encountered something like that or a conversation like that in some way? Well, what do you do with that? I think it's important for us to be able to respond uh, intelligently and thoughtfully to that. And one of the things that we need to do is just to remember that from the place in which we stand here at the 21st century context, some of Paul's instructions, uh, particularly ab about women, can seem very misogynistic and sexist to our 21st century years. So just a quick list of four examples. Paul tells women things like in 1 Corinthians 14 to be silent. He says not to teach or exercise authority in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about following male headship. And then in Titus, in uh, Colossians chapter 3 and in 1 Peter 3, he talks about focusing on the home and on the family. And so what do we do with all of that? What do we do then and how do we square it with our church's lived convictions and discerned convictions around things like women in ministry leadership where we affirm not just the equality but the God-given gifts and the calling of women to serve in any area uh, that we as a community affirm and see that God's gifts and hand is on their lives. We have women on our board, we have women on our staff and we encourage them to serve in all areas of society. And so how do we reconcile those things? is a great question. We're gonna look at an example of that today. And one of the things that we always need to keep in mind when we're reading scripture together is that scripture is always written in a particular context 
to a particular context for a particular set of reasons. And it can be helpful to remind ourselves of some of those things. So Rose reminded us last weekend, for example, that one of the hallmarks of the first century city of Ephesus is that it was a massive orientation culturally and religiously and economically toward a particular cult called the cult of Artemis. And Artemis was a female deity, and so uh, this movement we understand from reading a first century documentation about it and sources um, was that it was extensively, if not exclusively, led by women and by female leadership. And so pause to think about the implications of that for just a moment before we come to our text in Ephesians chapter 5. See, Paul's writing in the first century to a group in Ephesus, and they are of mixed uh, orientation. They come out from different places. So uh, people are used to, in their sociocultural aspects of their lives, only men and being in charge of all aspects of society. But then in Ephesus, they're used to women being in charge of the religious dynamic of society and no men being present in leadership in that sense, in the Artemis cult. And so we have a very, very different picture. And then if you think about it, people coming from uh, out of different religious backgrounds to saving faith in the city of Ephesus in the first century, uh, by the work of the Spirit in their lives, as they begin to submit their lives to Christ and join Christian community, they also bring with them expectations of a certain type of leadership. So if they came out of a Jewish environment and grew up with a history of that, then they also would be expecting male-only leadership in a church setting. And then those who came out of an Artemis cult, if they were Greeks, they would have expected only female leadership in religious areas of life. And so just think about the conflict that that alone would have created in this little group of first century Christians. And so it would be helpful and expected that Paul is going to write something about leadership and who leads, how they lead, and what that means to this little congregation to give them some guidance to relate well to each other in the family of faith. And because of the cultural context of the first century, it would be very normal for Paul to include some instructions around gender roles or conversations around roles. And so that's what Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 5, as well as in many other places. Uh, he uses what is a well-understood ancient guideline, something called a household code. And these codes were written to men, and only men. And these codes told them, basically, here's how to set up, and here's how a well-ordered household is to run in terms of authority structure. And so Paul actually is very, very intriguing because he knows the strength of these household codes in that culture. And so he uses the form of the household code, but in the insertion of it, in the content of it, he actually remixes it significantly. 
and gives an intriguing set of guidelines. So for example, his first century readers would be shocked that Paul even addresses women. In the household code, that was just not done. It was written to men who were then to tell women how they could be. And Paul just bypasses that and speaks directly to women. And then Pastor Wally's going to show us next week how Paul actually speaks directly to slaves and speaks directly to children. So just completely unheard of in the ancient world, but he's still using a form that they would recognize and understand. And so before we even talk context, we need to just recognize that by adopting this form, but remixing the function, Paul is already stepping into places of radical inclusion in the way that he's thinking and speaking. Paul is using the framework of the household code, which would be well understood in the Greco-Roman world, but he's putting a Jesus-y spin on it, and he's challenging narratives to slaves, to children, to women, and to men that are oppressive. So let's dive into our text for today, which is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. And it's very important as we come to this text that we kind of remind ourselves of the flow of thought for the whole of the book of Ephesians so that we understand why Paul places this toward the end of his instructions to them. So he started in the very beginning about talking to them about how God is in the business of redeeming and rescuing all things, people from every nation, background, identity, and transforming them, giving them a new identity, which is equal to each other in Christ and bringing them together in a new community, a new family, that they have been made alive in Christ, that they have been united together in a radical family, and this family will be a witness to a watching world, and not only to the watching world and the power structures, but actually to the heavenly realms and to principalities and powers. And both women and men, Paul says in Ephesians 4, have been gifted for service. To each one has been given gifts, he says. And all of them have been gifted in various ways to lead and to serve. And then all of us are to go about freeing ourselves from the sins that would easily trip us up from being a part of God's new family so that, as Rose reminded us last week, we can be the light and walk in the light. And so after all of those, then Paul begins a section of teaching that actually starts in Ephesians 5 verse 18. And he reminds them in that text, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is actually the foundation of everything else he's going to say for the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's a little bit hard for us to see it in our English translations, but uh, pastoral theologian Daryl Johnson notes, it can seem like chapter 5 and chapter 6 have a lot of to-dos, you ought to, you should, you should, but really the only command in this entire section is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything else is actually an outflow of saying yes to that particular invitation. And while we're on the topic of translations, pay just careful attention to where your translation puts the heading break um, because in some ways that 
it breaks up a little bit of the flow of thought because the flow of thought actually begins in chapter 5, verse 18 and kind of moves through there. But a lot of them put heading breaks either after verse 20 or some like the ESV put it after verse 21, which actually isn't helpful either because it cuts off verse 21 from verse 22. But the conversation that starts in verse 18 actually really begins to pick up in verse 21. So if you are filled with the Spirit, furthermore, as evidence of that fullness of the Spirit, submit to one another, Paul says, out of reverence for Christ. So let me pause here and just say that we're about to head into some controversial territory. So deep breaths. You can do this, Jericho. Um, There are lots of opinions and differences with regard to the way that this text ought to be read and lived out. But for Paul, first and foremost, the thing that he wants to make sure that all of us recognize and live into is this verse. Furthermore, because of your filledness with the Spirit, make it of every opportunity to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ across opposition, opinions, and differences. This is, Paul says, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. As you are increasingly filled with the Spirit, you are increasingly open to, and a safe space is created for you to submit to one another under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. A willingness to practice mutual submission is a mark of the Spirit's work in a person's life and is a mark of healthy Christian community. So there will be parts of this morning that are focused on a marriage relationship between husbands and wives, but let me pause for a moment. We're still in preamble, by the way, to to give a word to those who are not married, who are single. The invitation to spirit-filledness is really the point of this whole text. And so if you are a single adult, the real application for you begins at this moment. Does my life evidence that I am a person willing to be filled with and therefore submitted to the Spirit of God? Am I growing in those characteristics that mark out a person whose life is filled with the Spirit? Am I humble? Am I patient? Am I growing in love in my speech and in my actions for other people? In my relationships with each other, am I approaching them with a spirit of mutuality and respect and care? Or is it all about me? Healthy mutual submission is the mark of the work of the Spirit in the life of a person, regardless of their marital status. And so, is your life characterized by this atmosphere of peace and unity and holiness. So that's one thing. And then the second thing that that I want to say is that all that follows in this discussion of marriage relationships is predicated on the notion that the two people involved in that relationship are both submitted and filled with the Spirit and who are willing to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And so if that is not true of the relationship, if one partner is in some way domineering 
or abusive, physically or otherwise, or is using things in the relationship, sex or money or power, in a way that is not healthy, then all bets are off with respect to the way of life that the text is inviting us to consider. Because the, the command of being filled with the Spirit is what needs to apply in this conversation. You have to have that solid foundation in place of Spirit-filledness and a willingness to mutually submit. So what that means practically is that if you have been or you are in a relationship that is not characterized by those things, it's abusive in some way, and this passage maybe has been weaponized against you, that is not okay. You need to speak up. You need to ask for help and seek help. You need to reach out. Uh, We have walked with many people on our pastoral team through that journey, and we would be happy to walk with you. And some of you, this, this passage, even the reading of it, may bring up some pain and some hurt from your past and your presence. And so you need to pay attention if this is a triggering uh, passage for you in some way. And let me also say, again, still in preview, that we'll get to verse 22 in a minute, that if you are listening in and you as an individual have yet to come into that space where you have submitted your life to the spirit of Jesus, where you have said yes to God's family and you've given over control of your life to God and to Jesus in some way by letting the spirit fill you. If you haven't yet taken that step, then that's your response for today. That is our deepest desire and heart for you as an individual, that you would come to know and experience the life and life to the fullest that is characterized by those who are filled with and in relatedness to the spirit of God, that you can experience meaningful freedom from your past and from guilt and from shame. And so I just invite you, if you haven't taken that step, then to reach out uh, to us. And you can come to the back at our response time uh, at the end of the teaching, and our team can help you there take that next step in your spiritual journey or reach out to us. And uh, we'd be pleased to get in touch with you and give you some information on the next step. All right. Preview aside, now we're into the main section of the passage. Paul begins further, further to being filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, he being Christ, is the Savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. So here we begin to really see the characteristics of mutual submission working itself out. And you can see here where the problem of, if you just start reading in chapter 5, verse 22, isolated from all that precedes it in Ephesians, isolated from spirit-filledness and mutuality, that this can become an argument-winning kind of structure. You can say things like, no, we're not going to spend Christmas with your family this year because this is the end of the discussion. I'm the head of this house, and the Bible says wives are to submit to husbands in all things, and so it's just biblical that we'll be spending it not with your family this Christmas. 
Some of you are smirking or laughing, which makes me think that some of you have thought about this or maybe even said it out loud or experienced it. But remember, what Paul is doing here is linking this conversation on marriage into another conversation, a deeper and richer conversation. The model is Christ's sacrificial love for Christ's church. And so Paul says that's really what headship means. The focus is not on privilege and dominance. The focus is on service and on sacrifice. And this is because the role model for wives is not an AD 150 or 1950s housewife, but rather the role model is actually the church and the church's relatedness with Christ as the head, which is a beautiful and powerful and dynamic relationship. Because Paul never suggests that wives are inferior. He never suggests that they are like servants. The Greek word for submit actually doesn't even appear specifically in verse 22. We infer it because it appears in verse 21, and then in verse 22 it says, wives as to husbands. And so it must be inferred, and which means that what wives are doing in a marriage relationship is simply an example of what everyone and everything is to be doing in the church and in our mutual relationships with Christ and with each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives as to husbands, is the way that the text reads. So it's intriguing to note that sometimes we might have been told things or things get layered into this conversation that don't appear in the text. For example, the text actually does not use the word obedience in any way. And it also gives no license for husbands to force submission. Headship does not mean that everything that one party says in a marriage relationship goes. I cannot even imagine what a disaster my marriage would be if every idea that came into my head went uncontested by Meg. <laughs> but some Christians have been guilty of interpreting this text to mean that the wife in a marriage relationship then comes to say things like, well, whatever you think, dear, in any and every circumstance. Submission is not blind obedience. In fact, those things are never linked in this text or in other texts. Now, obedience and submission are linked in other places in the New Testament, but they're only ever linked when it comes to our relationship to God. We are, as people who live under the Lordship of Christ, called at all times and in all places to be both so submissive to and obedient to Christ. Those are always linked in our relationship with God, but using this text to build a power differential in marriage or to prop up rigid cultural gender roles in a Christian marriage is inappropriate and frankly is just theologically sloppy. Now this is further reinforced because Paul's definition of headship, he goes on to describe and define it. And he comes back to this primary model for us, the person and work of Christ. Let's keep reading because Paul actually now focuses the majority of his instructions not to wives but actually to husbands. Let's look at verse 25. So again, in verse 21 where Paul begins, further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ 
loved the church. He, Christ, gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds it and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his or Christ's body. So it's interesting to note that really, though we often get most agitated or animated about the instruction to wives, the majority of the text actually is an instruction to husbands. It's not focused on women's submittedness in the majority, but on men's responsibilities. Um, in the fourth century, Aristotle writes about household codes, and he says what would have been accepted as generally true at the time. The inequality between male and female, Aristotle says, is quote-unquote permanent. The courage of man is shown in commanding and the courage of a woman in obeying. And so Paul, see how he's going at this, and he's saying he's using the same structure, this household code, the same framework, and yet he's radically re-engineering the definition of headship. Paul defines headship as having a responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture, just as Christ did for you and me. And it's interesting because household codes in the ancient world, scholars note, never actually say a thing about love. There's never any mention of care from husbands toward their wives. Wives are seen in the first century contact as really nothing more than property. And so for this instruction, for Paul to say actually to love your spouse, to command them, to cherish them, to be willing to make sacrifices would have been absolutely countercultural to everything that every man had ever been taught in the first century about what it meant to be a man and to be a husband. Radical, radical re-engineering. Timothy Keller, uh, in his excellent book on uh, this passage, with, written with his wife, uh, Kathy Keller, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, says this, quote, When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone else. The biblical model for love is always the self-giving love that Christ demonstrated to the point of willingness even to give up his life. And so husbands, the question that we want to be asking is, what does that look like in practical terms in your relationship? Maybe it means to just think yet again about things that you have been willing to give up as an act of love for your spouse. And I don't know what that looks like for you. In every marriage relationship, that'll probably look slightly different. Maybe it means you would like to go hunting more than you do. But you give up a weekend away 
because you're just noticing that that's not healthy for your marriage relationship. Maybe you give up a time of beers with your buddies because your kids need you in some way. Maybe it's an offer to take the kids to soccer practice on a Saturday morning so that your spouse can sleep in. Maybe you restrain your spending in some way of something that you wanted on video games or whatever so that you can balance things out a bit in terms of your fun money. I don't know what that will look like for you particularly in your relationship, but it starts with that heart attitude of saying, I am willing to make sacrifices in this relationship. I am willing to give things up where that is necessary. Stuff that I might feel entitled to. Stuff that I might feel like I have the right to. But I am willing to lay that down because I want to show my love for this person. And Paul continues and in fact strengthens his appeal in verse 31 where he says, it is as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined or united to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. And the word that Paul uses here about mystery is not mystery as in, well, I have no idea what he's talking about here. This is really strange, awful, and mysterious. He's talking about mystery. It's the same word that he uses to describe a sense of awe and wonder. And he uses it in two other ways in the rest of the context of Ephesians. One way is the same work, uh, to the word to describe the glorious reconciling union that God does and is about of uniting people who were once far from God into a relationship with God and each other. Paul says earlier in the book, that is mysterious how that happens. It's powerful, but we don't understand all of the dynamics of it. And then the other example he gives here is actually sexual union in a marriage relationship. And he says, when people unite themselves in that way, it's, it's mysterious and glorious in some way, that love and respect and unity are forged and formed in that act in a mysterious and powerful way. And so Paul is yet again reminding us of the beauty and the holiness of marriage and particularly in this context of sexuality within a marriage context, that that love, that kind of expression of love needs to also come and be built on a foundation of mutual respect and spirit-filledness because it's pretty much impossible to have a healthy relationship without the work of God making new our human hearts which are so prone towards selfishness. And so to recap, the basic question, is Paul a misogynist? Even though an un, uh, a superficial reading of some of the texts, like Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, can make it seem that way, quite the contrary, actually. Paul is, instead of justifying male authority on the basis of female inferiority, Christian household codes in the New Testament that Paul writes are actually elevating women to equal status and worth as men. Historian and 
uh, author Dr. Uh, Beth Allison Barr in her excellent book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, says it uh, in this way, quote, instead of focusing in these household codes on wifely submission, everybody was doing that, the Christian household codes actually demand that the husband do the exact opposite of what Roman law allowed, sacrificing his life for his wife instead of exercising power over her life, end quote. And friends, this is what made the Christian community in the first century so radically different from the world around them. And so Barr continues and asks the question, what if instead of replicating an ancient gender hierarchy, Paul is actually showing us in this how the Christian gospel sets free even the most bound up people, those who were included in the Roman household and sets them free in Christ Jesus. So for us today who live in such a radically different context than Paul was writing into, what does that mean? Well, for those of you who have been Christians for some time and whose relationships you feel are decently healthy, it's just an encouragement and a challenge also to us because in our world, if you begin to live into these places of mutuality and spirit-filledness in your life, people around you ought to notice something different about your relatedness to each other. The radical love and the mutuality that husbands and wives who are Christian show each other ought to be so countercultural and intriguing that people would say, it's, it seems in some way that your marriage is built on something different, something deeper, something richer. Tell me more about that. Where does this love come from that you demonstrate to each other? People ought to look at Christian communities and that have this level of mutual respect for one another and say, well, they're not perfect, but there is something there that's holding them together despite their differences of opinion. And this isn't just approachable and applicable then to marriage relationships. That type of mutual submission ought to characterize how we relate to each other here at Jericho in every aspect, whether it's gathering for an AGM, speaking with each other, a coffee following or prior to a gathering. It appears and appeals to uh, and applies to how men treat women here at Jericho with respect in not, in, uh, not objectifying them any way. It it applies to how we work for justice here and in internationally, places like Guatemala and Tanzania, because we're wanting to bring dignity and bring this sense of mutuality to the relationships that God has put us in contact with. And so it applies to all people at all times, not just in the marriage relationships. The worship and song team is, is going to come, and actually when you think about it, uh, one of the things that we do every week here at Jericho is a part of our response to God's goodness and God's character actually is a wonderful exercise of mutual submission. In their excellent book, Resonant Witness, Conversations Between Music and Theology, authors Jeremy Begbie and Stephen Guthrie argue that singing together in some ways is actually the perfect example 
of mutual submission. Because whenever we gather together to sing in a setting like this, we're actually submitting to one another. We're submitting to the synchronicity of that moment. We're not just all off singing our own tunes however we want to sing them. We're actually submitting to things like a common tempo, a common structure, a common rhythm that the music creates to us. We submit to a unique but common melody and something beautiful is actually born. And so in that moment when we're singing, we're actually choosing to limit our freedoms in some way. We're going to sing probably the words that are on the screen, not whatever words are thinking in your head. Mutual submission in music is actually a necessity for the band to actually create something beautiful and, and wonderful. And mutual submission actually also invites us and is built on the platform of genuine participation. Guthrie writes, it is not and cannot be the silencing of a weaker voice by a dominant voice. The chorus is a society whose life depends on all members contributing their voices. And so just think of that as a picture for us about what beautiful mutual relationships can look like when we respond well to God and to others. Would you bow your head with me and I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we are grateful that your word is given to us in love and for our benefit. Sometimes it's hard for us to think about what it is that you're saying to us as individuals and as a community. And so again, we ask, Spirit of God, that you'd open our ears and our eyes to hear and to see what it is that you have for us today and in this season. Jesus, we ask that you would continue to teach us and deepen us in our commitment to be filled with the Spirit and to be mutually submitted to one another. And that as we live more deeply and fully into that place, that we would experience the joy and the life and the fullness of these types of relationships with you and with our fellow brothers and sisters here in this space and beyond. So we ask you for strength to do this. This is not an easy task in our marriages and in our community here of faith. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Spirit, to to help brush off those rough edges of us that still need your attention and that require us to be submitted first and foremost to you. And so we desire that, God, in this place today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. We say amen. Amen. Friends, I'd invite you to stand uh, with me as Jesse and the team lead us in song. Our prayer response team will be available at the back, and today that'll be Brady and myself and Gary Stevenson. You can also email any prayer support and requests that you'd like to prayer at jerichoridge.com. And let's respond to God's goodness and invitation to correction to one another as we stand and sing about our desire to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Let's worship together. <laughs>